Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome to Varmblog. And today we're talking with Doug Green, author of A, a Communist Insurgent, a biography of Louis Blanqui. Um A Failure of Vision, a biography of Michael Harrington, and the blogs uh the blankiest at blankiest.blogspot.com. And we're gonna be talking about the, um, both Blanky and more uh, more directly Michael Harrington today in the context of the stall out of the Democrats, you know, we're approaching a year into the Biden administration. Um, we've seen the DSA's growth explode and then dramatically slow. We've seen um, people make wild predictions about uh, Biden's neo-Fordist turn to see none of it pay off. Um, We've seen all kinds of things in the last year. And I wanted to get you back on, one, because we now approach the release of your um, critical biography of Michael Harrington with your books, which come out in the beginning of 2022, so next year. Um, Got a nice cover by our mutual friend, J. Andrew World. But uh, also because I feel like what we've been talking about becomes more and more obvious and relevant. And yet, and yet, Doug, I predict that we could probably in 10 years as the oceans rise and, um, you know, everybody starts seeing housing crises everywhere. Either it's too expensive or it's too cheap or both. Um, she's wild. And we could probably have the same conversation in another decade because we also could have had this conversation 10 years ago in the beginning of the Obama administration. And we could have had this, this conversation 20 years ago at the end of the Clinton administration. So I guess, Doug, why do you think we just can't quit the Democrats? I think it's partly just because, like, they are so hegemonic. They have the resources, power, and it's very hard to escape from just those material factors. And from that, there's just the ideological justification for it that just gets reinforced. You know, theoretically, DSA could break off and try something else. They've got far more numbers than any other left group in some time. But... 
materially they've tied themselves there and they have ideologically. And they're not the first and they likely won't be the last uh, left group that's done that. You know, it's it's interesting because we think about the Harrington strategy and we, we think this is unique to the DSA. But as your biography uh, points out, and as my own research on Christopher Lash's criticism of Harrington in the late 60s and early 70s point out, that this strategy of trying to move the Democrats left goes back from the Trotskyist era to Max Schachman and, and from the left in general all the way back to the Popular Front and the CPUSA after 1936. So, you know, what what makes this pool so hegemonic? I mean, some of it is, you know, the left strategy was created and contextualized for a European... Te- European parliamentary system, and we have tried to maladapt it to the American congressional system. Um, but I don't think that's all of it. And like you said earlier, yeah, yeah, the Democrats have have the apparatus; they have the hegemonic power. But there's a certain amount of self gaslighting that has to go on for this to just happen over and over and over again. Because it's it's not just that it's like a new generation of leftists doing, you know, con- uh, converging upon the same failed strategy over and over again. It's sometimes the same people converging on the same failed strategy over and over and over again. Right. So I think I would actually add a bit on to your remarks on the popular front is like choices get made to, you know, who you align with and who you don't. And in terms of the popular front, that was the last time the U.S. saw like a really massive labor upsurge. You know, during the Roosevelt administration, you see mass unionization of the CIO, you know, which shoots up, you know, millions. And that there is like large, if you're talking about a European context, a lot of CIO unions considered wanted to, you know, were open to the idea of like some kind of independent labor party, but they more or less decided, you know, we're not going to do that. Some of that's no doubt from the CPUSA who had already made their decision to support the Democrats, but it was also coming from, you know, various official dumb in the, in the labor movement that they weren't going to do that. And you have after world war two, pretty much a purge of any like left-leaning person within the labor movement. And it becomes heavily bureaucratized and tied to the democratic party when re- where it's really stayed. So with this is in contrast to Europe where even the more right-wing unions were part of socialist or social democratic or labor parties here, the, the labor unions are, certainly at the very highest levels tied to the democratic party and they pool their resources there. And almost any time there's even within the democratic party, some kind of progressive left insurgent, they most, they don't generally back them. They generally go for whoever the establishment figure is. Uh, you saw that like very heavily with like uh, 2016, where I believe the AFLCO backed uh, Clinton. I don't, I think they backed, Biden in the primaries last time, but someone can correct me on that. I, I think it was more divisive within the AFL-CIO, but okay. I think ultimately Biden did prevail. Um, I know in the NEA, there was a, not in my area, but there was a faction that was pretty strong for Bernie, but they didn't win. 
Um, so the question becomes like, is this a maladaptive strategy? That seems clear, actually, that it's a maladaptive strategy, but it's interesting to contrast it with the fate of the historical labor parties in Europe, because to be honest, what we've seen there is those parties resemble what's been going on with the left and the mm-hmm. Democrats more and more each generation. Um, the difference becomes, I mean, the, the parallels between Corbynism and Bernieism are complicated because Corbyn was actually in control of labor for a little while. And Bernie never really was a controlling player in the Democratic Party. Um, there is a sense in which um, the Corbyn loss was actually more damaging than the Bernie loss. And that the Corbyn demographic trend, despite the talk of of um, working class renewal, actually did, if you looked at poll after poll from the UK more cleanly mirror the kinds of trends you saw in the United States. So yes, there was an income variant um, between the rich and the poor. And a lot of the labor supporters were poorer, but they were urban and they were young. And that was a bigger tell than someone's social class um, in the historical British sense. Um, And that's new for labor. Like, that wasn't even true at the beginnings of New Labor under Blair. Like, you know, even at the beginning of New Labor, uh, Labor can still control a lot of these historical Labor districts. They lost it during that time period, but Corbynism didn't bring it back. And so that was something that I just thought was not dealt with. And if you look at the if you look at the UK left now, it's as bad as we feel about the left in the United States. It feels like the left in, in the UK has just been utterly routed that i'd agree with you there i don't even know what their largest uh, party to the left of labor is anymore is it still the swp or i think it... i think it is still the swp um although the i am uh the imt has been gaining ground from left wp bleed off which has been heavy um i don't know what happened to momentum and, and the momentum UK, not momentum right, right. US. Um, I do know that the SWP has been hemorrhaging members, despite it still being the second largest, because the various scandals around, right. you know, uh, the, the leadership there. Um, very similar to what we saw in the ISO, except the ISO dissolved. Right. Um, so... So it does seem like the IMT has been somewhat able to benefit from that. And for those of you who don't know, the IMT is the is the Grantite Trotskyist faction that's more I want to say ortho Trotskyist, but that like there's so many groups that claim ortho Trotskyism. Like if you get Grantites and Sparts in a room, they'll both claim it and fight <laughs> to the death. Like so it's you know, I mean, so I don't even know what that really means anymore. Um all that's to say that in some ways though historically worldwide i mean doug and i know this is this you have you don't write about trotsky but i know you care a lot about this the trotskyist movement worldwide is actually in rapid decline from almost every like the the imt literally seems to be the exception to the rule and the imt seems to be growing 
partly from other disaffected Trotskyists having nowhere else to go. So um, what do you make of that right now? It's kind of interesting. It's also, you know, the case in the U.S. Uh, like you said, the uh, ISO imploded. Obviously, they had their internal stuff and scandals and what have you. And a it's lot of stalled other... too. Yes, I was actually just going to say they stalled, and they're essentially um, they may disagree with this, but they're essentially liquidating into DSA. Right. And I don't. I'm kind of at a loss because suppose it, it's it's. Uh, it's interesting because we always hear all the talk about like the resurgence of socialism, all the discussion and all these kind of groups are just, they are just not picking up anything. They just seem to be gravitating toward DSA or imploding. And I'm just not sure if, if it's uh, maybe just their structures are so outmoded and undemocratic that they're just not going to attract people. And a lot of them are just pursuing very failed strategies on, on what to do. Well, I mean, that doesn't mean I'm necessarily them, convinced of the IMT strategy, but maybe well, the they just IMT have a clearer one. Ha, has a strategy in relation to the DSA, though. I mean, they yes, per, they do. But they're not; they don't seem to be losing their identity as much as Salt right. tends to be. Which is funny because, like, Salt's insistence on a on a hard trot line is actually why it, in some reasons, isn't the DSA. Because when you, mm-hmm. if you were to look at the groups in 2014 who were likely to play the role the DSA has as kind of left clearinghouse, you would have predicted SALT or the IWW, right? Mm-hmm. And and SALT enforced its line and then stalled out and pretty much limited itself to the SWAT campaign. Right. Although SALT did go in pretty hard for Sanders, but what I think they did do that hampered them is, you're right, it is their kind of hard line on it. But it was also like they're very two-faced about it. I remember talking to members back then. It's like, and I forget exactly how they phrase it, but it's something along the lines, we support him, but we don't endorse him. It's like, so you do support him or you don't? Then why are you campaigning? So it's very, but they were creating front groups that were just funneling members to them. So it was very clear to everyone outside their true believers that, yeah, you're just two-faced supporters. You're not upfront about that. Whereas to, you know, whatever else you can say about DSA, they support Bernie Sanders. They're very clear about it. And they were, they had a relatively open and more loose structure than SALT. They could take in a lot of people. Whereas like a group like SALT, you're not only expected to pay dues, you're expected to do things for the organization. But, and Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that. But I, the DSA's counter strategy seems to have been limiting too. I oh, mean, yeah, I agree. Like one thing is it this last uh, convention, which went way better than the one two years ago, but it proved that the DSA probably couldn't reform its constitution easily in mm-hmm. a meaningful way. It also it proved that despite the fact that the Harringtonites lost on almost every political question, the structure of the organization remains the way it was set up primarily by Michael Harrington, with the exception of now they're paying the MPC. Mm. Um, and not a lot. I mean, it's like two grand a month, but it's still like it's now a pay, the MPCs are an elected pay position. Um, the, the the central committee of the MPC anyway. Um, so you know, be clear on that. But it's, it's, it's interesting because what you're seeing is the bureaucratization that you'd associate with a party 
and the low bar to entry that you associate with a party in the U.S. So this is this is also something that's different because, like, labor, to be an actual member of even the Labor Party in the U.K., you actually do have dues, whereas no one pays dues to be a Democrat or a Republican. Like, you just declare it. It's really easy. <laughs> like, it's it's you know, I mean, to make a almost sacrilegious comparison, it's like easier than converting to Islam. Like, it's <laughs> it's um and a lot less demanded of you. So it's it's a thing to really to really think about. Like it's interesting because the DSA uh, also has this policy. Uh, it takes two years of non-due paying to get off the rolls. So we don't really know their actual committed even paper members. Like um, we know that they had a big influx of income then we get in COVID, but from their own stats. And actually, I know this. Because the the former ISO and the and, and Salt are actually some of the better people who are internal critics of the DSA within the DSA, despite the fact it does seem they both liquidated into them. I mean, with the ISO, it's unquestionable that that's where most of them went. Mm-hmm. Um, that they point, you know, that the, the uh, I think it was Tim's Magazine recently pointed out that like from their own admission. Um, while there was a massive increase in growth in the beginning of COVID and that and that attempt to get 100k members, which I think increased their membership by over a third, um, it's come to a resounding halt for about three or four months, um, and they're not seeing membership increase anymore. So whatever happened in the shock of COVID, and the longer we are away from the the Trump administration. And interestingly, because it seems like the sweet spot for the GSA was Bernie failing, but we're still close to Trump. And as we move further and further away from that, things seem to stall. Now, historically, how the, how the DSA, and you know this because of your biography of Harrington, but the DSA hit its first 5,000 with a similar strategy around Reagan and then stalled out literally for 30 years with, like, no growth whatsoever. Um. And I, you know, and who know? I don't know their paper member policy back then, but like, basically, they had between three and five thousand people. Everybody made jokes about it. You would join it because like Barbara Ehrenreich and and uh, Cornell West were in the DSA, and Bernie Sanders was in the DSA, so there were some left celebrities in it. But everybody just thought they were Democrats, even more than the CPUSA, which we also thought were just Democrats. <laughs> it's like so you have the sock dim Democrats or the Stalinist Democrats, but they're both really just Democrats. Um, pick your aesthetic, right? Right. Um, um, so, you know, I guess we'll tie this into your, your Harrington strategy, but it does seem to me that your, your writings on the Harrington strategy, I mean, we've covered the biography already. You've done two interviews with me and one with Left Voice on this. So, uh, and if people want to check that out, um, I see, let me find the Left Voice. I'll link it from your, it's on your blog, right? Yes, everything's on the blog. Yeah, so you, you're good about republishing your own stuff. So I'll link this, however, um, in the chat for people. And when I do the show notes for the podcast, I'll put it there as well. Um, so, okay. How much of this is Michael Harrington's fault? <laughs> A lot of it, I'd say. Um, and it's not so much him personally, but also just the ideas that just have seeped into the organization. So yeah, it's like DSA, even when it was founded was probably 
it may not have surpassed the CPUSA as the largest group on the left, but it was pretty damn close. And it has been at least nominally either the first or the second largest group for decades. And you're right. They have had a lot of celebrities in it, including former New York mayor David Dinkins, actually. Um, along, But it was largely, you know, all these academics and labor bureaucrats. And it's, you know, they can pick up, you know, people because, like, they have a low bar for membership, but they don't do anything with it beyond campaigning for Democrats. At least that's that was certainly true during the Harrington era. And there was a bit of wobbling after his death where they considered third parties, but they really never had anything positive. It was mostly just pressure Obama, pressure Clinton or whomever. And you're right. You know, they have had various upsurges in membership after 2016, like especially after Trump was elected, AOC, and you're right with COVID. And I did actually hear, was it Maria Svavert, uh, whoever the... I'm not sure if she's still the NPC on DSA. She's, uh, but no, she's uh, she's the. Uh, so here's the thing about the DSA structure. I got the DSA people to admit to me. Uh, Mia Swabber's the director. She's paid. She's not elected. She's paid. Okay, all right. It's like it's like a similar structure to those areas of the country, like a like where they think that the professionalization of the staff, which is hilarious, right? Because it's based on a professional staff model from a from a neoliberalization of city politics. So the idea is you need a professional, not, not an elected official to run staff because you need bourgeois professionalism to run staff. That's how you do it. So Swavert is actually the paid staff um, and the MPC is elected and the Swavert technically serves at the MPC discretion. But if you've ever, I don't know, study the way school boards work, and this is identical to the way a lot of school boards are actually run. The superintendent doesn't is not really worried about um, recall of the of the school board. I mean, that's right. really really rare. It takes a major crisis to bring that out. And with the MPC, there's also no there's no MPC uh, central committee recall either. Um, in mm. the DSA. So um, we have a structure that is super loose, except at the national. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on the DSA in the past year or so. So when I talk to them, I, that I don't get stuff wrong. So, for example, I learned that there's an 80-20 do split. While most non-campaigning activities are at um, the local level, 80% of dues go to the national and 40% of the national's budget goes to staff. 40% of the national's budget seems to go to consultants. Um, and then 20% of the national's budget goes into the various things that the convention elects for it to do. So, and also it has less money, even though the DSA has a lot of money, it has less money than you think it would, which is yeah. Um, so, uh, partly because it's, because if you try to project its membership off as paying dues, since you have two years before you fall off the rolls, that's not actually accurate to what their actual dues based income is. I I actually didn't realize that the, uh, the ratio was that high. I actually thought it was a little less, but 
anyhow, eighty twenty split. Yeah, yeah. I, for some reason, I thought it was like two thirds. It, it varies. Uh, it varies depending on um, the size of the of the chapter too. Apparently, but there there are some other factors. But that's the general rule. Um, yeah. Um, so a lot of it goes to the national. Most of what the national does is maintain the national's bureaucratization. Which again makes sense, and I, mean, I don't want to sound like I'm unreasonable. It makes sense in an organization that size with sure. semi-professional staff. Um, but that means that, like, what discretionary funds it has goes into electoral campaigning, and that's, if anyone doesn't know, that's prohibitively super expensive. Right. Like, so it's kind of a, a crazy situation, right? Um, now, I think this is very different from, from the Harrington DSA because the Harrington DSA didn't have any money. Right. Like, they were very much on a shoestring budget. There's all kinds of funny stories when they were founded or like Daysock was founded. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you want to talk about Daysock? Because there is an attempt to resurrect that now. Really? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, it, I have, uh, I've been out of the loop with uh, other projects, so I, I haven't followed that, but you can tell me about that later. But yeah, yeah Daysock was... Was actually the group he Harrington himself founded after he he left the Socialist Party. It's like seventy three, and it and was most that founded like the SPA. I mean SPUSA too, right? Like yes, that's, that's uh, it was a three way three way split. There's the what is now the Socialist Party of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, the Democratic Socialists, or I'm sorry, the Social Democrats uh, uh, USA, who were just basically neocons, and then there was Harrington in the middle who were the democratic socialist organizing committee. And they were a lot of labor bureaucrats, these kind of like uh, social democratic intellectuals, people like Irving Howe. And they were very active in like the Carter, you know, the Carter campaign, the, uh, what was it? The democratic agenda platform of 1976. And, they, you know, there are people who I've seen like Jacobin articles, like celebrating Harrington, keeping social alive in the seventies. I'm like, he's basically just campaigning for Carter. That's really all he did. And there was like a failed thing they were involved in called the progressive Alliance to protest Carter, which didn't do anything. And they ended up forming, uh, I'm sorry, merging with a group called the new American movement, which was the more moderates who came out of SDS and they were mm-hmm. basically moving in the same direction as as Daysock into like electoral politics and the Democrats. And That's they, the SES after all the communists kind of got purged. Yeah, this the is RCP yeah. took it over and right. Yeah, I mean they were originally kind of Marxist Leninist, but they kind of moved away from that pretty quick, and they just became you know focused on a lot of electoral politics and you know getting people into school boards and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's one of those things I tell people to look at with the Max Elbaum book. I mean, mm-hmm. there are times where I'm like, you do have to get people in the school boards and city councils and stuff. But, um, cause one of the criticisms I would raise at the DSA is they don't even do that. They're, they're solely focused on like high media campaigns. Um, right. Uh, so, so like, Dog catcher politics and dog catch like what I used to call dog catcher Trotskyism when I was being a jerk, um, uh, is not really part of their strategy, even though they will try to work for state level officials. Although it's also weird, uh, 
they are just now forming state level organizations, which is very strange to think about. Like, like so you had locals and you had the national, and in a confederated country like the United States, they didn't have state level organizational intervention, like at all. Wow. Like there weren't like like I think certain states now have certain state level intermediary chapters have formed by votes of locals. But like it's not part of their constitution and never was. I mean, it's kind of nuts. Like I know, like the the CPUSA just to take one party, they've had state parties, you know, Communist Party of New York or California, mm-hmm. wherever. And I actually do think I was aware about DSA of that, but it's just kind of amazing. Like there's just like California, you know, like a you know DSA LA, and then there's just the national. There's no intermediary steps, no way to coordinate people on a higher level. Right. I mean, it's both over bureaucratized and under bureaucratized if you think about it. Yeah, totally. It's it's over bureaucratized and yet under it's yeah under bureaucratized or under organized. Like it's okay. Yeah, that's a good phrase. Um, like I mean, I do I do worry about the you know. Um, the bureaucratization of any left organization. Cause if you look at the sure. historical S S S pay day, that's one of the things that killed it. Like, right. But, um, one of the many things that killed it other than literally fascist, but, um, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to see where they go from here. Um, and I, I think maybe this is why we should go back to, to like looking at, um, why the insurrection? Like, why do you focus on, you know, not just Harrington, but also Blanky? I mean, we talked about this many years ago. You were a guest on one of my earlier, my early, early shows back over at Zero Books when I was working for them early on, independently of Doug Lane. Um, and we talked about your book on um, on on uh, Louis Auguste Blanqui. And Blankiest is usually like a slur on the left for quasi-anarchist, uh, vo- voluntarist. Um, and you wrote a very nuanced defense of Blanky, um in terms of his biography. Why do you think we should go back and look at figures like him in moments like this in particular? So what I'll say about Blanky is for just his biography it's very romantic and dashing and heroic you know he does you know i would say like someone like that deserves the respect of anyone who's on the left just you know Mm. he was committed and he meant it but i think one reason i was kind of fascinated by him and it's a reason i would go back to him is he was very interested in how you actually make a revolution like when do like what do you need what strategy how do you go about implementing that strategy? What conditions allow it? And I think it's fair to say he got a lot of those answers wrong, but I don't think those are the wrong questions to ask. You know, and we can respect his commitment without necessarily wanting to repeat his particular actions. Whereas, like, if you look at DSA and just look at the last convention, is they or the last two conventions. They originally had, they proposed something in 2019 for like the dirty break is what they call it. Eventually, at some point, they were going to form some kind of independent party. 
And if you look at the this last convention, they essentially backtracked on that. They're just going to be the the center left flank of Biden. There's no question like, well, if you want to get to socialism, like what are your first steps at least you're going to take? You know, it's actually interesting that you say that, too, because the dirty break um, has been backtracked on. And yet frustration with the Democrats within the DSA itself has been polling higher and higher and higher. Like like um, people I mean, like in the in the poll, but like people who were who would self-identify as burning Berniecrats and people who wanted an independent party, the independent party people actually increased between the last convention and this one, and yet the actual rulings are even more conservative on that point. Like, what do you make of that? I mean, I kind of make of it is just like how much of the common sense of uh, Harrington is there. Harrington mm. formulates all the kind of arguments, you know, for staying in the Democrats, for focusing on reforms, for maybe eventually doing something different. You know, I often hear when I, you know, argue with certain DSA people, it's like, you know, at least we're doing something. It's like, I'm like, yeah, you're doing something. It's just not very good. And it's not going to lead anywhere good. You know, not if you, you know, want something in terms of socialism. It's funny for me, like you hear we're doing something. And yet I remember hearing this a lot when you read about people involved in like the anti-revisionist left in the late 60s, early 70s. And stuff like that. And yet, what did they actually do? Right, they did something. A couple of them even blew themselves up um, to no avail. <laughs> but what did they actually do? What did they actually achieve? I mean, like, like if we talk about Louis Auguste Branqui, we know what he achieved. I mean, he didn't succeed, but we know what he achieved. And we know what happened to Blanquiest. Like, I can trace historically what happened to them, where they went, what movements they joined, etc. When I ask people, what happened to the million or so people who identified with some form of communism in the United States in 1968? Nobody fucking knows. They didn't die. Where'd they go? Like, and, what, and I say this because, objectively, the ASDS, I think, capped that around... Around six hundred, uh, around sixty or seventy thousand people, um, but objectively, that movement, that new left movement, was larger than the DSA, like both in per capita terms and in what it was able to do. Um, the DSA, for example, would not be hubristic enough, or dumb enough to try to claim that they were a major player in the George Floyd, Floyd protest initiations, for example. Um, um, which which is not true for like the 69 uh, free speech stuff around the SDS um, and its participation in elements of the new left. Now, they also probably wouldn't claim the Chicago riots, but they have more stuff actually under their belt that they achieved. Yeah. Um, also, their political movements were larger. McGovern won his primary. Just mm-hmm. saying. Yeah. And it was still a stupid strategy then. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, what's when you bring up the Floyd protests? It's interesting because there was like, first of all, I don't want to deny that DSA members participated in it. 
That's certainly right. true. They did, for sure. But, but as an organization, they didn't. There was really – and they could have done stuff as an organization, you know, you know, call this day of action, that day of action, or whatever. They could have done all kinds of stuff there, but they really didn't. And for an organization that was at that time, what, claiming like 80,000 or something members, that's punching far below your weight class. Right. I mean, when the and, when a group like the PSL, which at most has 6,000 from what I can tell, like, and that might be really rapidly underestimating us to actually encounter the PSL and IRL the way I used to encounter the ISO. And I'm thinking about what I know the ISO size to be when it was at its high point and you encounter them regularly. Um, it was about five to 6,000 people. So that's what I'm guessing the, the PSL at most is, right? Like, right. Okay. Um, the, the, the IWW is around 6,000, I think. Um, there does seem to actually historically, except for when these big movements erupt like the DSA or the SDS, that seems to be the natural limit for a lot of these quasi-sectarian groups. Um, I don't know why. I, 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 it's just an observation. The When they can do stuff like that and, and be fairly disciplined about it, right? And it's not like the SDS is, I mean, the, the, the excuse me, the PSL was a super disciplined group. Um, it has tons of problems. They're sure. well known. Um, but they can do that. Like, why can't the DSA? I mean, I think the it ultimately comes down to their focus is electoral. They'll get people out in the, you know to phone bank and to campaign for AOC, Sanders, or whomever pretty easily because that's what they're kind of built for. But you know, they're not really built for something in the streets like the Floyd protests or something. You know, what the Europeans would call extra parliamentary you know s- struggles or strategies. They're just really not built for that. But they, you know, if if I, you know, if I wanted to run for school board, I'm certain I could get DSA people to like be pretty disciplined about that. But uh, in terms of like stuff outside of the electoral arena, I don't really think so. I know that there are variations in branches, but as an organization, I, I just don't see it. Well, this, this is another thing that I would have people throw back at me when I would make criticisms of the of the DSA. It's like, oh, my local is so radical because X, you know, or my local is so radical because, like, members of the Freedom Road Socialist Association are on the central <laughs> committee or, um, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and I'm like, yeah, that's a blatant violation of DSA bylaws, but no one seems to care. Um which is interesting because I, I see people complaining the DSA can't hold the squad accountable. And guys, power differentials would indicate that, like, the Democrats, they have money and power. The DSA doesn't. Who's going to be able to hold who accountable? Right. In that organization. That's, like, obvious, right? Like, it's not like you don't need even basic game theory to make that point. You could just, like, look at a balance sheet. It's overwhelmingly obvious how it's going to go. Um, all the present votes where the where the squad like sits on their hands and pulls the Kowski on everything from Israel to to the military budget being the exact. In fact, they're worse than pulling a Kowski because they'll strategically vote so it passes. 
whereas Kowski sincerely sat on his hands during 1914. So, you know, what do we do with that? Because they're not even holding people to the things the DSA actually has in its platforms and bylaws. But that's also true at the local level, too. They don't really hold anyone accountable there except randomly kind of ad hoc by disciplinary committees. I mean, it's always a problem with the broad the broad tent strategy is you can bring all kinds of people in. But once you start, you have enough people in there, you know, it, it basically comes what, you know, a friend of mine once called meatloaf politics. And I say mm-hmm. that as someone who likes meatloaf, actually is you got to water things down. You really can't get anything that's super divisive and act on it because then you'll alienate some group. And that's always trouble for a broad front, you know, because a more disciplined group, it might be smaller, but there's generally a higher level of unity. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's, you know, a more disciplined group is not without its problems as well, but certainly... You know, if you bring one in, you know, how are you going to discipline someone, you know, like AOC? You know, I saw them. They kind of had a statement that said something, but it was like very mealy mouth. It's like, okay, she just voted, you know, a lot of money for them. And that's not the first time she's done that. You're going to discipline her or you're just going to say, boo, and go back to campaigning. You know, it's a. there really just doesn't seem to be the structure or even like you said, with Kotsky at the very least, he was actually in a, an actual socialist party. It wasn't even like AOC's in the Democrat party, which isn't even committed to socialism, at, even at a theoretical level. Right. I mean, with Kotsky, you have a whole lot of confounding things. Like he actually is in the peace faction, but he sits on his hands. Right. And he may, and he maintains, uh, he maintains um, democratic centralism, which is actually why he was legitimately accused of voting for, I mean, accused of voting for the war because he wouldn't betray his democratic centralist principles. It's actually kind of funny, but um, funny in a historical way. But my point, people will bring up, okay, the locals and there's working committees for mutual aid, labor organizations, and tenant unions. However, what the broad spectrum voices of the leadership are, I mean, you'll have people near the MPC literally run anti-mutual aid campaigns. That's the majority of what the locals do that isn't canvassing. So why is that there? If the national is running camp, if members close to the national running campaigns against things that there are DSA working groups for, why is that working group existing? I want you to do a little bit of organizational calculus is there to keep people invested it's there to keep people busy and it's there to i guess maybe build build a base however we haven't seen a whole lot of payoff for that one one thing i will say mutual aid is necessarily mutual arts charity like you actually have to demand things from people receiving that aid. The SA is not in a position to do that. Tennis organizations uh, and tennis unions are something I support in theory, but I will say strategically, what does a tenant strike look like? It looks like being homeless. 
What are you going to do? Really? All you can really do is defensively employ the law with the with with the tenants union supporting you and maybe running aid and that tenants union running aid to help get rent paid. But you can't strike. It's not going to shut down because there's an investor who will seize that property in a second. You're not relevant to that. And so as an organizing strategy, I'm not quite sure if it achieve, if it can achieve what it says it's going to achieve. And its alternate goal is not made clear. All right. Is it a legal defense organization? Is it a, is it a way to help people find it can do a lot of things and some of them do. I've dealt with individual attendant unions, but as a strategy as a whole, calling it a union in the implication that it can strike is misleading. I remember about four or five years ago, one of the things I heard that was the appeal for DSA, it was like, oh, we can all kind of come in and do whatever we want and everything and experiment and learn from each other, which, okay, that, that sounds great. And certainly some of, you know, maybe the, you know, some of them were doing tenant union, you know, fixing brake lights and everything. But it was also like, there's just like, partly that's a reflection of organizational incoherence. You know, you have some people who I guess are focused on the, the fixing the brake lights or electing Democrats or reading groups or what have you. But what's it ultimately tied to? You know, ultimately, you know, it's to are you trying to build a base somewhere? Like, I'll give you an example of a group that's far different. Uh, the Black Panthers did breakfast programs and like what, you know, some people might even call like mutual aid or charity or whatever have you. But it was actually tied to a larger project and strategy that was, you know, and that's not to say there weren't, you know, issues in the Black Panthers with their membership and state repression and all of that. But they seem to have a much clearer goal of what it was to, to do. And the other thing is, that it's not just there's a low membership bar in terms of uh, dues paying. It's like, what's your political education look like? You know, any, you know, halfway semi-trot group has some kind of political education on like the ABCs of socialism or what have you. Do they, I mean, are they trying to generalize it? You know, are they going to, you know, have, you know, do you think, I think like, do all members read the communist manifesto or something? Or do they just like listen to Sanders speeches? Because, you know, I've encountered people who've, you know, in DSA who are fairly familiar with some socialist fundamentals, but most not so much. They just sound like, you know, people who would be on Rachel Maddow or NPR or what have you. And that's something like any left organization has to do at some point is um, educating its members. And organizational coherence means like, you know, if you're going to do mutual aid or whatever, what's it ultimately tied for tied to, you know, I, I think like in terms of strategy, it's like looking at your end goal and then trying to work back and just see like, what are your first and next steps? And I, I just, it seems like a lot of groups and this, and I, it may not apply too much to DSA, but a lot of maybe more left sectarian groups, they have what I almost call the hamster wheel of activism. They look very busy like they're doing a lot of things, but they're really not going anywhere. 
you know, we used to call the ISO ambulance, like activist ambulance chasers. They go to one thing, the next, and they keep their members hyperactive, but they weren't really building or doing anything. And, and with this, we're not even seeing that because this, no, all, this, this only really applies to members that are high investment chapter members. And if you go right. to any DSA meeting, they will tell you, I mean, I've had people tell me outright, for example, that like, um, here in Salt Lake, there's like 600 people on rolls. You'll never see more than 60 at any given event, ever. Um, and they have trouble getting people to fill out the central committee because, uh, because also they have trouble getting their ratios right for the various per capita thing. And why people throw out, yes, individual chapters can throw out, although it makes no sense that individual <coughs> chapters can throw out ma- national bylaws. It just tells you that the national doesn't consider the individual chapters relevant if they can do that. Like, there is a way in which a lot of what I hear in response to what you and I say about this is what I call prior investment strategy. You have sunk cost into this. You have to justify the sunk cost by the good in which you do. Um, everyone's like, well, there's political education stuff happening in most chapters. It's not required to be a member, though. It right. is in most other organizations. Right. Like, I mean... If you were in the ISO, you had to attend, you know, education courses, you had to show up for things. And in of itself, none of that is is necessarily bad. The way, I think the way they did most of it was bad. But it's like just the, like you said, you just you can just throw out your own national laws just because it's convenient. I mean, which laws under what pretext? That's not a recipe for something very healthy that can be used in very nefarious ways, depending. And I'm not saying that, you know, those people are necessarily doing that, but that's not a good precedent. You know, some modicum of discipline is necessary for any, you know, organization. And part of, you know, their term in terms of their hamster wheel of activism, it just seems like uh, it's whatever the election campaign is. Like they certainly were very active with, uh, you know, obviously in 2016 with the various AOC runs and especially with, you know, with Sanders and but right before COVID, you know, it seemed like it was uh, the come to Jesus moment for them. Well, We'll we'll get back to to some of the history in your books, but I want to talk about some some psychological biases that are at play in the people commenting on the chat here. Uh, The locals don't worry much about the national, even though 80% of their dues go to the national, which means the locals' hyperactivist function is there to keep members in. The reason why the DSA doesn't care about what the locals do at the national level is because it's irrelevant. So they can spend their wills doing mutual aid at a scale that doesn't matter. And yes, scale of mutual aid really matters. All right. There's a reason why you aren't achieving even what Hamas and the Brotherhood achieved. All right. Right. You're just not. You're not. It's it's kind of pathetic that you call yourself doing mutual aid when you look at those models are the historical Bolshevik model are the SPD model or even the first international model. And these are on orders of scale larger than your organization at a time period where the population was a third to half in the areas in which it was operating in. And I'm so, so I'm comparing real numbers to proportional numbers. It's rather pathetic. Two, you have survivor's bias. You think because you're doing this, 
and you see things in your immediate sphere, and thus you see effect in your immediate sphere, because, of course, why else would you do it? That's what the actual organization exists to do. Look at where the organization's money is. You'll see what it exists to do. And that structure goes all the way back to Harrington. If you lie to yourself and say, well, the locals are where most people are actually doing stuff, but 80% of the money goes to the national, what does that tell you about the actual priorities of the organization at the national level? And if it's a local get-together club, why are you in such an org to do that? Because you have a meeting house and a roster? Mm. I mean, yeah, you, the survivors thing, like, I've... it comes up a lot too like whenever you criticize anyone in a left group it's you know about their strategy or something in their political line it's like you know we're achieving this result this that result but it also kind of can blind you to looking like at organizational deficiencies and just becoming very hostile to people you know who just won't uh, get in line with it i remember you know i've encountered that with like people in various sectarian groups it's like, you know, we're, we've accomplished this. We got all these people to show up at this event or this meeting or whatever. And it's like, okay, but it's like, you have all these other things you're not addressing. You're not, you're, you know, evading the point. You and, can't even lobby effectively. Right. You I can't mean, like, lobby effectively. Like, like, I mean, this is, this is like the DSA is not even an effective lobbying organization. No, it's not. No. Like, um, they should l learn from the NRA, frankly, <laughs> the NRA or even, even hell the, I mean, like what, what bugs me about it is it's pretending to play a bunch of different games at once and actually playing none of them well, but because of the size and the size on paper, we're not even talking about the size of active members. And because that can make you feel like you're achieving something where you've been in this little sect for 10 years and done nothing, but you've never even been to a national union conference because you're probably not in a unionized work field. So you don't know what that's like, and you don't know the difference in scale. Okay? Right. The, the, the NEA can't achieve crap. The NEA has like 8% of the workforce in it. That's probably not that high, but it's but it's an order of magnitude larger than the DSA. All right. It can't influence the, the AFL, all, all the unions, the AFL-CIO sends 80% of its non-dues funds to Democrats explicitly as lobbying, and it doesn't get much for it at all. Mm -hmm. It occasionally can get state-level stuff done. That's true with the NEA, too in certain cities, in closed shop areas. Now, they can't do it. Why are you assuming the little leftists that could can? Because you mean well? Like, and yet, what Doug has tried to illustrate in his books is this is part of the structure or the organization from the beginning. The idea was, basically, you would have a non-democratic centralist organization that acted as a vanguard on the Democrats through force of will, but also wedded them to democratic politics. Am I wrong about that, Doug? That's a good description. Uh, 
I think all, something else that, uh, you know, we need to touch on is historically, you know, you know, a lot of left groups have, tr- have been, or have tried to base themselves on some sector of the working class. So the CPUSA at the beginning of the 1930s, overwhelmingly composed of industrial workers. You know, they had real presence in a lot of unions. They could do a lot of things there. If they called strikes, it actually mattered. They're the only people trying to organize the agrarian working class of the Southeast. Right. Like literally the only people. (laughs) So what's interesting about the DSA is, is that they're, are overwhelmingly younger now, but they mm-hmm. seem to be more like downward, you know, mobile, uh, socially moving socially downward from the middle classes, as opposed to being like grouped in like some sector of the working class. And I know there are people in labor unions as part of DSA. And they're, yeah. And they work with like one labor union in New York and stuff. I mean, I, I'm like formally, they work informally with others. I, I don't want to like say that. They- yeah, yeah. I'm not, I mean, yeah. I'm not saying like, you know, they're, they're all some kind of, you know, petty bourgeois or something, but it's like, what is actually the, the class base? Or are they trying to build a certain class base? Because if you're socialist, I would, you know, uh, that's kind of an important thing. Cause... I, I guess the, 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 I wouldn't totally push back on that. Although I do think when we talk about middle classes in America. Right, right. Part of that actually is part of a strata of the working class in that it's wage earners and has some relationship to the overall spread of commodity production. But I mean, I still get your point. Like, um, it, it's actually hard to know in the United States, to be completely honest, and actually even most of the Western world, what working class or any left is building off of now. Historically speaking, of course, they were. Right, right. But after 1968, that seems to fall apart. Um, um, the DSA seems to be, when I looked at the DSA demographics, it did not seem to be, it didn't fit the the description of the PMC thesis. Like, you know, it was always a bunch of college educated people. It is a bunch of college educated people. They do tend to be on the middle class spectrum of the lower middle class to working, to working class in the conventional sense spectrum of income. They also do seem to, however, be concentrated in areas of high cultural capital like overwhelmingly in the cities on the coast um dramatically overwhelmingly in cities of the coast and if you look at where they're more likely to where locals are more likely to be activist locals as opposed to electoral locals um the activist locals are in areas where democratic politics are more contained within a city are more conservative in general even in the democratic party such as louisiana um, which is where the Blake Light Clinic actually comes from. It comes from the New Orleans DSA, uh, DSA chapter. They're the first people who did it. Um, and then like um, here in Salt Lake, the DSA chapter tends to be, well, actually, ironically, they don't tend to be more activist. Um, when I actually go to activist events, they're not there. It's the PSL or, or the WWP are just anarchist are occasionally people around the IMT very, very rarely. There's not that many of them around here. Um, uh, and then if you go to labor union stuff, there's no left groups there. None, none at all. Like, 
if they're Sandersites, they're independent labor people. And I, I say that because a lot of people forget while the Democrats are in control at the national level and there's more Democrats in the United States than Republicans, more states are ruled by Republicans. And in these states, the labor unions are, are A, hurting. B, they're still hemorrhaging members, by the way. Uh, this whole labor resurgence thing is only off new unions. Industrial unions actually lost membership during COVID. The, posi- the amount of the percentage of people in unionized labor went up only because so many people left the job market. The actual raw number of people in those unions went down. Like, so I don't see any dealing with this objectively in any left formation in the United States, but in particular, I don't see it in the DSA. Yep. Uh, I, I agree that other left groups are, are not dealing with it, but you know, DSA has the potential based just on paper membership to actually, you know, make a difference if they were to commit to some strategy, you know, you know, you brought up like the, uh, the new com the new communist movement or the anti-revisionists back in the seventies, at least some of them, they tried to immerse themselves in the working class and do something. Yeah. A lot of it was clumsy and probably didn't achieve super much. But it was actually not an unreasonable strategy to, if you think about it. The, yeah, I the, mean, it was it was basically it was salting unions the way unions salt workplaces, which is you can like I am mixed on that strategy, you know, because I think people see it and don't trust it. You have to do a whole lot of like to right, salt right. to salt an org, to salt a workplace as a union takes a long time and a lot of trust and. Um, and it also generally does take people who are from that social class in the way that the people working in that field are from that social class. And I need to be specific because it doesn't mean you just need to be from the general working class. You also need to be from that sector. Um, but it's still, it's, it's, it's kind of, I get that. I don't think it worked. I mean, I think we, no, we have these hilarious stories about how bad that went. Um, but they at least tried, and this is after the new left and people actually trying to even justify abandoning the working class as a subject altogether. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of an, it's kind of an interesting problem. It's also a problem that it's hard to imagine what you could do with the union bureaucracies right now because they are basically lobbying organizations. Um, that's their primary function for their professional staff. Uh, it's to interface with the politicians and the the actual management and the other bureaucrats do tend to come from workers in a lot of these unions, but they have different functions and it's hard to it's hard for one to control the other. I mean, it really. I work in a union where this is definitely the case, so. When you see this, you see a spread of tactics, but it's a spread of tactics to nothing. Uh, and it's the, the if people want to join the DSA and reform it, great, fine. But you'd have to be willing to wage war on factions within the DSA. Right? You'd have to really be willing to fight factions. And and historically speaking, this is where my my uh leftist history comes from. I, I've had people yell at me lately about 
about uh, sewer socialists and try to nuance their position so that when I said, for example, that Victor Berger took an anti-immigrant stance, no, he really took a pro-immigrant stance because impounded labor is, uh, is, is coolism. And I'm like, that's not what that actual thing said, though. Even if that was his logic, uh, there's a reason why Debs broke with him. Well, similarly, Debs never got rid of those factions that say Berger's compromise was trying to appeal to you, right? They never did in the in the SPA, right? They never could figure out how to do it. Um, it limited the SPA's appeal to to black workers and to immigrant workers. And in fact, it pretty much kept immigrant workers out. Um, and it, that contradiction was one of the many contradictions that when the Bolsheviks came, they could, no one could figure out what to do. I mean, Victor Volker went to jail partly for supporting the USSR. All right. Um, even though, and yet it didn't stop um, the CPUSA from, straw from calling Victor Berger a social patriot and thus a jingoist socialist, despite that, because of the compromises and inability for for that faction to to pull the rest of the S, of the SPA into a less jingoistic um position. Similarly, if you guys want to do this in the in the DSA, you'd have to go to war with parts of the MPC, but no one wants to do that because left unity is seen as more important than any ideological principles, but left unity for what? Like right. left unity has to be for something. Right. So I, I point, I've actually used this as an example and it gets people kind of mad at me, but I'll still use it is let's say your principle is, you know, opposition to us imperialism, just, you know, that's a fairly common one among the left. Are you willing to propose, you know, in the DSA, the expulsion of AOC, who has yeah, voted the for formal expulsion of AOC. the formal expulsion of AOC for supporting U.S. imperialism and for not campaigning for people like Bernie Sanders? You know, just carte blanche saying we're not going to do it. I mean, that's. You know, you can definitely see harder left groups where that's not an issue because it's not considered because it's in violation of, you know, something they've already agreed to. But if you're going to actually in DSA do that, you're going to make a lot of enemies. And you're going to if you're actually serious about it, you'd actually have to engage in education, you know, all the kind of, you know, nitty gritty political things that groups do behind closed doors and everything trying to lobby support. But, you know, that would get, you know, the thing is, like, no one, it seems in DSA is even willing to consider that because that's a very unpopular thing to say or do. You know, we like AOC. She, you know, she's very media savvy and, and all that. But you look at her actual record of voting, it's it's inconsistent with, you know, what an ostensibly socialist organization should should tolerate. It's inconsistent and, with her own tweets. Like, right. And her own tweets as well. Like. Like and, and and I mean we are at a hard point like this because we've conceded a lot of these points to people like Jimmy Dore by being quiet about it, right? And you know people who want to build a people's party, whatever. I don't even know what that is. Like yeah. a kind of counter populist party, um, because we conceded this to them. 
for the sake of black unity. And I'm kind of, I mean, to be honest, I'll even say I'm kind of guilty of this in some ways, because when I worked for zero books and the media venture, because we worked with Michael Brooks and Ben Burgess, and I consider them both personal friends, you know, um, still, I mean, Brooks is not around anymore, but I, you know, I still have fond memories of him. Um, But this was an issue where I basically was told to shut up. And so eventually I did, you know, like, and people couldn't tell, like they couldn't tell where my politics were anymore because they were like, well, you don't criticize social Democrats the way you used to. And I've been kind of like, I've been told it's bad for business. That is always, that's a huge danger. It's because you're right. People, they'll look to some, you know, charlatan like Jimmy Dore or whomever for an alternative. If all the socialists are telling, you know, telling you to support AOC or the Democrats and if people are angry with them and they're looking for alternatives, you know, they'll look in probably not the best places. I remember. And the anger with the Democrats is going to increase exponentially. Right. And you know, if we're leftists, I think we should want to attract and channel that anger to like our political project, you know, that's positive. You don't want them going to Republicans or other groups in the Democrat Party or what have you, because it just can rebound on you. Like, uh, you know, historically, like in Germany, like a lot of anger with the the Social Democrats get channeled to the right as well, although they also had, of course, had, you know, a far left alternative as well. Where people yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, they Linka didn't win. <laughs> I just want oh, to I was, I was talking about, I was talking about like in the twenties. Oh yeah. 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 But yeah. 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 But that's what happened is, is, is the, the social, what happened in, in the twenties in Germany is really complicated. Right. Of but course. basically like the unemployed workers went to the communist party. The workers with good jobs stayed with the S day the petty bourgeois and the and some workers would they get people try to pick yeah, there was none um and some workers who were particularly disaffected went to went to the fascist movement or the revolutionary conservative movement or just the conservative movements and then the business class went with liberals but with liberals went with whoever was in power at any given moment I mean, people talk about how, oh, they went with the fascists. Well, they also did go with the socialists in the end of the Weimar Republic, I, you know, just to point that out. Um, uh, I mean, one of the iron- ironies of history is uh, the socialist government became an inflation buster. Um, you know, uh, during the 1920s, this is actually largely forgotten in left history. Um Hilferding was fighting an, infl- an inflation problem um, against Shaktism, which was kind of proto-Keynesianism, proto-MMT, chartalist theory. Um, so the the issue became like, well, who, who was going to go? It was split up, but there was no obvious answer to like who was going to actually oppose the Weimar government conditions. Um, and unfortunately... A lot of uh, oppressed groups got factored in with the government, which is what happens when these failures happen. These failures have a consequence, by the way, because in the Middle East, in Germany and whoever, the oppressed groups that a moderate center left or even center right government protects in a way of a retaliation, those groups get attacked. Mm hmm. 
be it the Jews, be it whoever, be it LGBT people before we called them that, um, LBGQIA plus, um, before we called them that, um, all of this, I, I've seen it. I've actually seen it in real life in, in Egypt when the, when the um, Arab Spring failed. Um, the Islamist movement that supported the Brotherhood also failed in its split into people who wanted to make reconciliations and just accept the current conditions under the LCC government and people who wanted to go even further to the right and support um, groups like I uh, like uh, like I like Islamic State. And the Islamic State rightists couldn't attack the government, but they could attack they could attack protected minorities like cops and they did. And then the government used that to reinstate the national security law, which undid the entire era of spring. Right. I say this because these consequences and failures, if you care about oppressed peoples, you know, not just the working class, don't fuck up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, like, because the consequences is marginalized people usually get hit first. Right. Another example I was thinking of was France under Mitterrand, where you have, you know, the Socialist Party coming into power in a coalition government with the Communist Party. And because the communists are a junior partner in that coalition, uh, they're they're tied to the government's policies, which you know Mitterrand actually comes in with a fairly radical sounding program. Within fairly quickly, he's you know instituting austerity and what have you. And basically, the communists are out, but they're so discredited from that that anti-system alternative goes to you know the National Front, which really starts achieving its electoral breakthroughs in the 1980s, and they're. I think they're now called the National Rally, and they're they're poised to, I think, be the second or even the first largest party in France now. now we can't like the center is always barely save barely saving National Front or post National Front rule in France for the last three election cycles. Like they get closer and closer every time, and some new center candidate emerges out of the heap of the ashes to kind of save it. But like Mac- Macron. By the way, by the I mean, uh, from Americans don't seem to understand Macron is a right wing figure. He's a center right figure. He's a right wing figure. I mean, he's like he is like if you voted for McCain and you know, he is the McCain to to Sarkozy's Trump. Um, but he's still a right wing figure. Um, uh, Merkel, for example, who now is gone. Bye bye, mommy Merkel. Um, <laughs> um. Uh, was was also a similar right wing figure, but was less so than the ADF or even other factions of the Christian Democrats. And, and, and the American liberals, because they don't understand European politics, accepted this. And the left just didn't know how to navigate it at all. Um, the reason why I focus increasingly on international politics, though, is because I want people to understand this world beyond whatever they're seeing on YouTube right now, which is going to be some bullshit about AOC's dress. And while I, I personally found that dress annoying and kind of enjoyed, uh, enjoyed a Mark Fisher meme about it, I also pointed out that Mark Fisher actually said some of the same shit AOC did before he died. Um, so, 
you know, I think we can see that. I mean, I think let's try to get this tie this in the book. I mean, we've been ranting because we've been responding somewhat to the, 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 the battling factions in the chat today, but, um, and, and we've been doing so in a way that we can probably keep in the podcast. However, uh, I, I want, I want to tie this, this in and maybe this will be our last point. Um, Harringtonism as we know it comes out of the the, the, the the dying gas of the of a faction of Trotskyists entering in the the S uh, the, the about to say the SPA the SP the SPA the 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 who was who was a remnant rump party for like 40 years after the 20s. Like the, the CPUSA was much larger until actually ironically. In America, the CPA USA was was much larger until the National Front period, which totally pulled a lot of people out of it. And by the you know by by the red by the third or fourth or fifth, however many you want to count, Red Scare of the 1950s, you know, the CPUSA is still big, but it's fractionating every every other day. Um, but so you had a. This remainder of the Max Shackmanites who enter, you know, the Social Democratic Party. It's interesting because there are some, there are some uh, Trotskyists who try to claim that Shackman was never a a, a real Trotskyist. I don't know what that means. Um, I mean, if you hold someone to an ideal standard, like maybe even Trotsky doesn't meet the standard of real Trotsky, I don't know. But that's impressive. He presided over the founding of the Fourth International in 1938. I mean, he was Trotsky's bodyguard at one point, too. So it's like, yeah, it's like I, he certainly wasn't a Trotskyist, you know, in terms of you know the Trotsky standards after a certain period of time. But I think it's definitely far fetched to say he never was. But yeah, so I mean, obviously. Shackman is undergoing a metamorphosis after he, you know, leaves, you know, Trotsky's orbit. But it's it's important to note it's not all at once. Like it it's not t- like James Burnham. There's no like letter no. of conversion and like then no, he all not at all. works for the proto CIA. So like like he's supporting, you know, Harrington is like into the 50s, including with the Shackmanites, they're supporting like Ho Chi Minh. Mm-hmm. You know, they're supporting the Vietnamese. At the same time, they're also adopting an, a contrary position, like the Stalinists at home are the greater evil. So we need to support the labor bureaucrats and people in the Democratic Party. So they, they have like all these kind of interesting contradictions there. So they don't abandon like, uh, you know, all that heritage right away. They eventually more or less do. I mean, part of like the fusion of Shackman with the Socialist Party is at least, you know, he essentially says, you know, forming the Communist Party way back was a mistake. We should just, you know, try and have this broad left front. And part of the reason they actually entered the Socialist Party was because the communists were hemorrhaging. And the thing that really killed them was Khrushchev, was the secret speech. They had, you know, they still had tens of thousands of members after McCarthyism. It was Khrushchev's secret speech that that really did them in. So people like Shackman, Harrington, and uh, Norman Thomas, they thought we can pick up all these people. So they wanted to form this new uh, this new group. And 
in the course of that, you know, they they could have positioned themselves in a certain way in the 60s, you know, because, uh, you know, they were involved in the civil rights movement with people like Barrett Rustin. Harrington was involved in the founding of SDS. And if he hadn't have overreacted, I still think there would have been a split between him and SDS, but it probably would have been maybe delayed for a little bit. But there is, you know, this. Uh, now you say whether whether I actually think that Harrington was a truer Shackmanite than Shackman, because he was trying to actually stay true to the whole strategy they developed of realignment and, you know, mm-hmm. siphoning off these moderates from the new left. Whereas Har- with uh, no, Harrington, I'm, Shackman is like, you know, they're all a bunch of bums and hippies. We don't want anything right. to do with them. I mean, I mean, there is a reason why Shackmanism and not just an anti-Semitic conspiracy is associated with the birth of neoconservatism. Like no, it's uh, those people really were like the people in Social Democrats USA. If you look at their biographies, they're involved in the CIA. They're involved in Henry Scoop but, Jackson and all of those type of right. people. And then you had all these ex-Marxists who were tied to the Shackmanites who were involved with the Congress for Cultural Freedom and mm-hmm. and stuff like who, you know, James Burnham was hanging around like. Like mm-hmm. it, it, th- there was explicit CIA ties at the same time, like COINTELPRO is doing what COINTELPRO does. I'm careful about that because there's ways you can understate what COINTELPRO did and you can overstate it too. Sure. When you actually study what COINTELPRO did, in the case of the Panthers, it got people killed. In the case of like the RCP and the CPUSA, it actually just encouraged already existing internal fights to go on until the organization split and split and split and split and split. Like, so one one of the interesting things that I point out is one of the best things the CIA did in regards to the mainstream of the of the far left, which is almost an oxymoron to say, but but still um, was to was to encourage national national uh, divisions while also insisting on a line, because if you insist on a line and encourage divisions, you just make organizations super fragile. No line, the organization can't do anything. DSA. Um, <laughs> or very little line. I mean, DSA has a line, but it doesn't enforce it. Um, uh, too strong a line, the, 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 the organization just constantly splits. You maybe can critique some of the Orthodox Trotskyist parties for, for having too severe a line and making every material change seem like a need for a split. Um, so, you know... There's different ways you can look at this organizationally. Um, but you also have to fight within like within these groups, even if you're in a non you're in a multi-tendency large tent group, you have to fight within that group for the correct party to win. And there's also, I mean, my, and that would be what Morris and Ingalls would say. And there is a point, um, particularly when things are in the decline, where unity doesn't make sense anymore. Like Marx and Engels talk about this when when they talk about why they were totally willing to split the first international. Like, um, and the letters, specifically Engels' letters to Karl Libnick and the and the beginnings of the establishment of the SP Day. Because they were also fighting within the SP Day to defeat the Lasallian current within it, which was dominant before the Marxist one. Right. There comes a point in, you know political life where you're just not going to agree and you're so irreconcilable that you just can't do anything about it. 
I mean, to take Harrington, he coexisted with Shackman for a while. It was really only after 68 or so that he really kind of came out in the open and was actually willing to do a faction fight of any sort against mm-hmm. him. But, Let me, mm-hmm. and it's like, I see these factions in DSA, these various caucuses, and sometimes I'm not sure what some of them are fighting about. Or like they're, and sometimes they just seem like so facile in even holding to their their opportunist positions. I know that sounds kind of strange. Like I know at the last convention, um, the bread and roses people who were big at least on paper about the dirty break, they rolled it back. And it's like, right. and it's like, are, you, do you have any courage of your convictions at all? Because that was like their one of their big selling points was that whole thing. Like a lot of their members had kind of developed it. So it's like it's hard. Like it's you know if you're not developing a line, you know, to push for in some way. I'm not saying you have to be uber sectarian or whatever, but you're not pushing for a line and you're just willing to retreat. You can probably all stay in the organization, but you're probably not going to get anywhere because no one has a clear idea on what to do. You're not promoting some unified vision of any sort. And I was actually just thinking when you mentioned back about the SPA in terms of like the Debs era, I mean, I think one of the criticisms you can make about Eugene Debs, you know, he was a great speaker and, you know, obviously they're big presidential candidate, but he really didn't do anything in terms of internal party life. He really wasn't active in that sense. Whereas, you know, there were other people who were far more involved. You wouldn't have seen that if it had been like, you know, someone like Lennon, certainly. But I mean, I mean, my thing, I guess I'm just kind of rambling a bit is it is necessary to come up with like, you know, you want to achieve A, B and C or stand by it and push for it. And it was just kind of amazing when I saw like those bread and roses people just kind of like cave on their own positions and give them up. Cause they were, re- I'd seen them for years, just pushing them. So what do you stand for at all now? I mean, yeah. I mean, in some ways I want some of the, the non-electoralists in JSA to put their money where their mouth is and actually just oppose any of their resources going into um, AOC's reelection campaign, because, because we know that that'll be spread out amongst general Democrats anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I, I think one thing we can ask ourselves, and and maybe this is, um, maybe this will be the last question I'll, I'll ask you, um, because I've talked a lot in this interview, because I think we more or less agree on a lot of these problems. <laughs> yeah. Makes it a little bit of a problem where I'm like, hey, Doug is right, so I'm going to just expand on more points about why <laughs> Doug is right. Um, but well, it's always helpful when people think that. But. <laughs> Um, but well, on this issue, definitely. Maybe one day we'll get into a fight about the legacy of Trotskyism. I mean, that's we might fine. Have we can do say. that. That's, that's a um, fun. That'd be interesting to, to to say something on. But um, uh, what I was thinking about this is uh, it's so hard to figure out. On, on one hand, I agree that is it splitting too much 
is, you know, just come up. It, it's deleterious. And we have to deal with people who don't agree with us. There's going to be no perfect socialism made out of good people with the correct line all the time. It's just, that's true. It's why this politics is politics. You have to convince people. You have to do work. Um, in another sense, though, you do have to look at the structure in which that is being done in, right? Like, um, and the history of that structure. I mean, because you and I can go far, far back because, you know, I, we'll just trace problems all the way back to, you know, the SPA itself, right? The SPA itself have major problems. One thing I would say is like, you know, why the SPA failed or didn't fail isn't because of Eugene Dez being a good guy, but not good enough. And Victor Berger being a bad guy and, you know, but being kind of good sometimes or Uterman, who's even worse. Are are you know the the 20s leadership of the SPA, which is was a disaster, but also that their goals were wrong, like you know it just objectively, and even some of the leadership, like you know, like I said, later Victor Berger, even after being called uh, uh, a social patriot and a jingoist socialist by the CPUSA, his wife actually enters the party, I believe. You know, like, so, um, and I think the only reason he doesn't is he's like the only socialist sitting senator. And if he had transferred to the, to the CP, to the CPUSA formally, I would have stopped that. But it's, it is also interesting. And like, what is the legacy of sewer socialism? If you're in Milwaukee, maybe a lot, but in the grand history of things, it's a blip, right? We can't say that about the left in Europe, at least in the in the 20th century. You cannot call whatever whatever 20th century Marxism was, whether you like it or not, and whether you think it failed, which I do think the actually existing communist parties in, in Europe failed. Um, you can't call it a blip. Like you can't call it like a regional, a regional thing. It was absolutely world-changing. And this brings me to the difference, though, between what we're talking about right now with these structures and these historical movements and what we talk about now. Because instead of talking about mass politics, there is mass politics right now. We saw that in the George Floyd protests. Is it is it sustainable? Doesn't seem like it. We can't seem to turn it into anything. But it existed for a second. Um, you know, I used to say there was no mass politics and someone would throw the Floyd protest at me. And I'm like, OK, you got me. You got me. But we can't turn it into anything. That that's a mass politics of of localism and negativity. That's you know what it is. Um, that's not necessarily means it's bad. It just means we can't do anything with it as it is right then. And we didn't turn it into anything else. If anything, you know, it led to capitalist marketers being able to diversify things more. To be honest, like, yeah, I mean. I heard the kind of thing about the Floyd protests about Occupy, which I participated in. I was a you know member of our local group, but mm-hmm. it really was you know certainly there were people out in the streets, encampments. But really, if you think about it, if you're like we are ten years out, you know where that ended up is in the Democratic Party, in like the Sanders campaign, especially in 2016. So that was mass politics in a certain way, but you know it ended up in uh, almost it, it certainly it ended up in its own different kind of marketing, if you put it like that. Right. I mean, but, so and that's been a problem here because, like, 
there just is no organization to capture these things peter out eventually you know they can be militant they can be inspiring and i don't want to take that away from occupy or the floyd protest but unless you have something to capture it to like channel that to some organized form it's it's someone else is going to capture it you know and co-opt it it's just uh, it just happens politics abhors a vacuum well, one thing I would say is that what, that what I've been told has been the positive thing from everything from Occupy to now is the movement over of the Overton Rendo leading to a, resurge, a resurgence of the discussion about Marxism. Well, I do think there is a resurgence of an internet discussion about Marxism. There is, you know. Um, I don't think the movement of the Overton window has amounted to shit. Like, when I actually look at the substantive positions of people calling themselves socialists versus the substantive position of the Progressive Caucus in, say, 2002, has, has things really changed or has it just been rebranded? Like, I, that's think it's what, been, hey, I think it's been rebranded, and this is a complete side note, but I just want to bring it up. When I first heard the Overton window was on Glenn Beck, I know he didn't originate the term. So I was, I was always I was shocked when I started hearing leftists use it. So I've, I've always just kind of found it this gradualistic excuse and just kind of laughable. <laughs> and, you know, there are moments like I just think like the Overton window just becomes this excuse for like, oh, we're just going to slowly shift things and eventually there'll be this this time. But, you know, there are also like those moments where just struggle kind of explodes on the scene and, you know, things shift rapidly and i don't think the overton window type excuses get to that and a lot of the dsa thing and you know i i think some dsa members might be mad at me a lot of their thing is like yeah there's certainly more talk about socialism certainly using the word but if it just means new deal liberalism then you really aren't any better off then you're just confusing terms yeah, you know, when people tell me like the uh, like the FDR was the founder of our party, um, you know the beginnings of democratic socialism, and I, I mean no offense to Harvey K, I guess, but like I think that's that's laughable. I think that's a laughable position because the left during that time period thought the FDR was nailing that was just finishing the nails in the coffin. Yeah, like. And if you actually read FDR's speeches, he's like, I'm the alternative. I'm saving capitalism. Like, y- you people are just mad because, you know, a- I'm saving a drowning man, but you lost your hat. You know, he's making them pay a little more taxes and things like that. But he's kind of clear on what he is. He's certainly very intelligent about it. You're yeah. right. Un- until the Popular Front, pretty much anyone on the Social Democrat, Communist, or whatever left, that they-, they despised FDR. You they know, knew what was, was going on. Right. I mean, um, after the Popular Front, that's dissolved, and and I do have to point out that like you, you the, even even celebrating third periodism becomes problematic because you're like, well, you know, it was really good for a black communist. That's why there was so many black communists. Black right. Communists. I mean, that's like, actually that's fine. <laughs> you get into the, the Germany stuff, and then it's a little uh, more difficult. <laughs> Yeah, and then you look at Germany and you're like, yeah, well, but that's on the back of, like, the European workers' movement that you, like, you know, and it led to wild things. I mean, but one thing we forget about about time periods is I love, I, I will, I love and defend W.E.B. Du Bois, but mm-hmm. he did say stuff like, 
the Japanese empire would be a progressive force against, against Western imperialism, which yeah. is hilarious in retrospect. Um, but understandable actually as a position in the thirties in the late twenties. I don't think it, some people will try to resurrect that position actually in historiography. I won't say who I've ranted about it before. Um, which, which I, which I find, um, to be a laughably bad take if you know anything about what actually happened in Asia and what mm-hmm. that what that led to. Um, but it's it's uh it's it's a problem right now because on one hand you have a bunch of people I think you're gonna see more and more disaffectation with the Democrats. And the DSA is not gonna know how to pivot to it. Ironically, the DSA's popular the DSA's popularity is related to Jacobin. Jacobin's popularity is related to, honestly, frustration with the Democrats. <laughs> so, but but that that policy, I remember even saying this to uh, to people who were Chapo fans back in the day, because I, I read Chapo's book on on socialism, and it was like it had all these critiques of FDR, the classical critiques, and then it was talking about how we had to support Bernie Sanders, and I was like. Do you not, do you not like draw lessons from history? Like at all? Like, like, okay, you might argue that we need a united front with elements of the Bernie Sanders campaign on certain workers' issues. But that's not what you're saying. And that kind of nuanced right. difference is lost on people now. Like trying to explain the difference between a united and a popular front is really hard for people to grasp. Um, like a united front is. You don't actually join the stupid party. You definitely don't support their politicians. You don't campaign for them. You don't canvass for them. You know, you will selectively make some electoral inroads on issues alone. Right? Like, and that's actually really hard to do in the American context because there's right. no there's no parliamentary system for there to be an independent socialist party in to stand that way. So in some ways, the the United Front is a little bit more closed off from us. And the popular front historically has been a disaster. Right. right. Like we have basically saved the Democratic Party from itself twice in history. Only to have it lose to more reactionary forces when we did so. Right. I mean, yeah, in like, you know, France or Germany, like United Fronts are feasible because you have mass parties you know, socialists or communists where you can do things on that level. Of course, you also like more parliamentary systems here, you know, it was, you know, like the, uh, the communists like dwarfed the socialists for a lot of history. And, you know, after 36, interestingly, the socialists maintained a position of political independence. And that's also like a big difference between the popular front and the United front is maintaining your political independence and identity. I mean, the communists, you know, here just dissolve themselves into the Democrats. And, you know, the current CPUSA, if you follow it, is probably to the to the right of DSA. And that's not meant for much praise for DSA, who I think to a large extent have dissolved themselves into the Democrats. And that just becomes a problem when you want to channel anger you know channel like energy from like you know something like the floyd protests into something sustainable well if you're protesting against the system all these people and you know you're 
DSA and the Democrats who are part of the system, who's going to really look to you? And it takes a lot of mental gymnastics to do that. Well, you have to be like uh, the insider outsider strategy. And I'm right. Which was like DSA actually adopted that in like the 90s, but it's really just the same thing as realignment. It all kind of comes back to that. And realignment was never a real strategy. It was just get out the vote. Yeah, get out the I vote. Mean, it was always, it was always a non-starter. And ultimately, that's, that's also the kind of the problem with like the bread and roses people in the dirty break. It's like, we're going to just work with them for now. And eventually, at some point that's very undefined, we'll break. But in practice, it's, it just becomes just support them. You know, it just becomes all dirt, no break. Yeah. Which is which is predictable though because the, yes, the, the, their, their strategy for the dirty break is dependent on I guess democratic uh, democratic hegemony to the point where normal U.S. electoral problems that have existed since the seventies don't happen anymore, right? But like because that would be the only time where their dirty break wouldn't risk a right wing resurgence because they're always that's the justification for working with the Dems, right? Is the fear of the right-wing resurgence. It's the, it's the whole, it's the whole popular front as anti-fuss strategy. Mm-hmm. One thing I would be interested in, I'm just kind of thinking aloud here. I live in a state, Massachusetts, that's overwhelmingly Democrat. There's always a supermajority in, in the local, the house and the Senate. There is a Republican governor, but he's pretty moderate by Republican standards. You know, you could have conceivably a dirty break here, but it's not done. They're all just local Democrats if they're, you know, because I know there's at least one DSA state senator, but he's part of the Democratic Party. And because that's the thing, it's like there's always that boogeyman that you can bring out. And once you kind of accept the electoral logic, it becomes the black hole. It sucks you in. You know, maybe the dirty break is trying to push back a little, but the, the inexorable logic of like, getting involved in that kind of bourgeois politics, it pulls you into that. And because what, you know, unless you're actually going to put out a clear alternative as a different pole of attraction, you get sucked into the other pole. Because you could conceivably in the Democrats have a large audience for your ideas. You know, you, you know they're a, a big party. They've got resources and all of that media. But if you're outside, you know, you're not. And that's very attractive to people. And I've often said, like, when I've heard people who are running as DSA members for office, like how their good history and positions and, you know, maybe some kind of activist work or whatever, it's all kind of BS to me because it's like, you know, those structures are going to, they'll make mincemeat out of your good intentions. I mean, you're talking about like the anti-revisionists, how many of them entered the, the Democrats with the best of intentions. And like, you know, during Occupy, like the mayor of Oakland was a former Maoist. He was like yeah. setting tear gas <laughs> on the protesters. I was about to say the mayor of San Francisco was actually uh, part of a somewhat. No, the mayor of Oakland was not just a Maoist, but part of a radical faction of Maoists. Yes, a radical faction. Uh, right. Jean Kwan um, or something. Yeah, Jean Kwan. I actually know somebody who works with her and told me the story. <laughs> and I was oh, like, wow. oh my God. Um, uh, you had the recuperation of Aoki, who you know was tied mm-hmm. to the was the gun runner for the Panthers, who was also a spy. Yep. Um, and that came out after his death. Um, it's it, you have to be careful with this. Um, I think 
Um, a lot of the people who are going to debate strategy right now are being way premature because they don't even have principles together. Like, like if you ask someone like, okay, you want to, you, you want a united front for socialism. Well, what do you mean by socialism? You, know, right. you want to, you, you, you haven't, you haven't said, um, you want a united front for, for anti-imperialism. What do you mean by anti-imperialism? You know, that seems a little clearer, but then in actual practice, it definitely isn't. Um, right. Are you a third campus on, uh, on, are a revolutionary defeatist or something else? Are you just standing in another state or are you actually standing in another faction within your own state and not even being aware of it? Um, I think these are all things that you kind of have to deal with. And, you know, you're right. Uh, most of the new left, even the most of the new left Maoist, they ended up, I mean, most of the trots and most of the Maoists of the 1960s ended up in the Democratic Party. Some of them ended up in the Republican Party. Some of them ended up as David Horowitz. Yep. You know, I mean, you know, some of them became became the left and the liberals' bigger enemies, believe it or not. Um, but like Rob Reich had ties to the SDS and even the RCP. Like it's it, what no one talks about it. Like, um, how many former Marxists are actually Democratic mayors? No one talks about that either. And they're probably not even on the left wing of the Democrats. They're probably not even part of the right. Progressive Caucus. Yeah. It's the same in Europe. If you look in like the Labour Party, there's like all these X68ers. And mm -hmm. what was it? Uh, what's the guy's name? Stammer. I think he was actually a Pabloite Trotskyist at one point. Yeah. And now he's a Blairite. And now he's a Blairite. It's just kind of hilarious. And uh, I remember the former president or president or prime minister of france lino josephine he was a lambertiste trotskyist it's just hilarious like some of these trajectories the uh oh some of the basis of the of the french neoconservative movement actually came out of the maoist movement you know so they, they like new people like badu and all it's kind of yeah you're right like we we have to deal with the fact that we often generate our not just our collaborators and recuperators but also our enemies yeah like um, so I guess the, the, the moral of this story is learn your history, uh, not because we're doomed to repeat it. We, we aren't, we're not doomed to repeat it, but because if you don't learn it, you might make, you might actually make the same mistake in new ways. Um, like, um, cause the DSA and the SES are very different. Um, but not that different. And the government, the McGovern campaign and the and the Bernie campaign is very different, but not that different. I guess I guess actually, if we're completely honest, the difference between the McGovern campaign and the uh, and the Bernie campaign is McGovern was actually less recuperable, even though he was also less of an economic leftist. So, you know, what are you going to do? I mean. Uh, we didn't need, we didn't even get to the point where we had a McGovern moment with Bernie. All right. Like, you know, and, and I remember people for months telling me that like Bernie as the person, as the head of the, of the financial committee in the Senate was going to mean that we were going to backdoor get DSA programs through reconciliation, which has been 
hilariously wrong. So, and it, just a year in, it's hilariously wrong. And it looks like it's only going to get worse. I mean, guys, the Democrats couldn't prevent the Texas law. They can't do anything about the Supreme Court. They can't pass an infrastructure bill. They can't even stop a government shutdown despite controlling two of the three branches of government. How competent can they possibly be? Why do you, I mean, yes, they have power and infrastructure, but just from the standpoint of practical politics, they suck at their job from their own standpoint, not even from ours. Yep. They are just incredibly spineless. They're willing to cave for anything, really. I mean, I think the only thing that they're really talented at doing is like uh, co-opting opposition. I just think that's really it. And But then again, it's also like, you know, it takes two to tango on that. So there's always those who are willing to be co-opted. They may not think they are, but yeah, they, they kind of are. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we got one question that was actually reacted to us. So I guess we'll answer it and then, be our, then we'll end for the day. Uh, what are Doug and Derek's opinions on the future of the $1 trillion and $3.5 trillion bills? Uh, you'll probably get something like, like the one trillion dollar bill through reconciliation, maybe maybe like a one point five or, you know, because ultimately, the Senate had the Senate Democrats have more power than the House Democrats, and structurally speaking, the uh, Joe Manchin can can destroy the Democrats by just changing his party affiliation. AOC, even Pelosi leaving wouldn't matter it's just it's just that's just numbers and 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 uh game theory actually because where 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 is aoc gonna go right which is also a, a problem with this strategy right like if she wants to stand up to where is she gonna go you haven't built an alternative for her like what's she gonna do I mean, that's that's the thing about this is like people think that we, you know, that, you know, it's about AOC being an opportunist hat, which she may be, but that's not even the point. Right. It wouldn't matter. Like, I actually think like Ilhan Omar. Or, uh, Rashid. Tlaib, yeah. yeah. Rashid Tlaib probably do believe what they say, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. I agree pretty much what you said about the the trillion dollar bill. The only thing I would add, it's they'll probably get something through. It probably won't be that great, but it also just kind of shows like, I remember just uh, a few months ago, just hearing people say like, Oh, Joe Biden has broken with neoliberalism. It's like Keynesianism reborn. We're on the FDR path. I'm like, what are you smoking? It's like just because he kind of says some kind of nice things at times. And, you know, some of these politicians, they ha- they can be very smooth talkers. That's why they're politicians. <laughs> and it, it's just kind of amazing just like the level of self-delusion. It's like I'm not saying that, that like a lot of social Democrats and liberals have. And I'm not saying we should be complete pessimists or anything, but I do think like being a hard realist on things and – Part of it is like looking at the structures that these, you know, politicians inha- inhabit 
and what they're designed to do. And it's just like, it's just like so much magical thinking that just frustrates me. And, and on that note, we're going to wrap up um, <laughs> the uh, magical thinking upsets me too. And I think there's a whole lot of it here. Um, I also think there's a whole lot of political subculture battles that ultimately don't aren't important there. The whole focus is wrong. Um, whether, you know, this is a perpetual problem. I remember when like out here in Utah, like parts of black Lives matter were like reaching out to the proud boys to make an anti-racist statement. I'm like, why, why you look, you oh, makes Jesus. you both look like weird political weirdos. It doesn't actually convince conservative people to move over to you, even if they were inclined to, you know, some are, but that's not how you're going to do it. And conversely, it makes you look to people with principles like you don't have any. So these strategies just don't work. You have to you you do at a certain point, you have to stand by your principles and work with people and convince them and speak their language and know their class biases and their sectional biases and their regional biases. You do have to deal with that. No one's saying that you don't. But like or well, some people might be saying that you don't, but they're stupid. Which <laughs> like I, I should say no one's saying that. There's always someone saying something. Um, but what you don't do is try to appeal to the weirdo politicos of any, of any class to convince the whole class to move. That's backwards. Like, in fact, Mark says that, uh, Ingle says this explicitly to Carl Liebnick. Like, you don't try to win over the leaders of the movement. You try to win over the, the people who are just casually involved. Because if you get them, a lot of the leaders will come too. Like, and then, and then you walk, you, you, you welcome them in after they, do some contrition and they conform to whatever the line is. But what you don't do is try to pull the people by the leaders. Like that doesn't work. Like it just makes you look like you don't have any principles. Um, and that's what I will end on. Uh, thanks Doug. I know we didn't talk so much about your books. Uh, I would tell people look out for that Harrington book. We talked about it uh, in uh, a, a interview I released here on this channel very early on it was originally recorded for somewhere else but they didn't release it because it wasn't um we had some we had some connection issues that day um go back and listen to that if you want the the scoop on the harrington book also read doug's uh blog and look at i think the most recent thing you have up is your interview uh specifically yep. on harrington um and his biography check that out um you also did a really good and fair parsing of the settlers controversy way back in the day people should check that out too um because it was neither it, it it didn't condemn jay sakai as anything ridiculous but it also like dispelled a whole lot of stuff in there it's just false um our, well, thank you so people should check that out um so doug's done some good good historical work uh so and and yeah read your book on blanky also, I'm just going to plug everything that you're. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that I've seen passed around by you. Um, do you still have lectures on YouTube explaining? Uh, they're still all this? there. All my YouTube lectures are still up there. I probably should uh, put links to those on the blog some point. But most, but uh, if you actually want, like, all the lectures are essentially on the, like the the, the written portion are on the blog. But if you actually want to hear me talk, you can feel free to watch my channel. Mm. All right, so check out Doug's channel. Um, 
yeah, because I just think I discovered you that way like seven, eight years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but uh, all that said, I want to thank you. Um, uh, and we'll end the broadcast here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for supporting VarnBlog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening. Thank you.